Well, verse 12, chapter 5 is where we'll start. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, in other words, some of your Bibles say, if you're willing, Lord, you can make me whole, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, or saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Well, first of all, again, this leper broke all the rules. When this leper came to Jesus, right there, you shouldn't do that. Lepers were in leper colonies, and this was the biggest disease of that day. This was an epidemic. This was a pandemic. This was all over the world. Uh, There was no cure for it, highly contagious, and therefore, uh, there were certain rules, especially within the Jewish uh, area around Palestine, what was Israel. Lepers, when they got within 300 feet or 500 feet, I forget which one it is, they had to cry out, leper, they had to cry out unclean so that people would just part the ways in front of them. And and that wouldn't normally happen because they weren't allowed to go far from the leper colonies where they stayed anyway. Food was brought in and left in certain places and then people that were not contaminated would back off and the lepers would come and get it and bring it back to the colony where they were. So they were completely separated and it seems like they were, I mean it seems horrific and it was when you think about it, but they didn't know what to do other than this because you, if you just touched a leper you could get it. It was highly contagious. So you were to stay away. So he breaks all the rules about leprosy, and he came to Jesus anyway in a public place. So there's huge crowds following Jesus around, and they're all around Jesus, and this leper comes, and you got to understand as he's approaching, people see it, they're screaming out because he's not screaming out. So they're screaming. It's a leper, and it's just a sea around Jesus of people just parts, and Jesus is left standing there with his leper, and the crowd, the crowds are probably nearby, I would say roughly 300 to 500 feet away, looking to see what Jesus is going to do. He's a teacher. Uh, he's a rabbi, so of course they think he's going to bolt and he's going to run. Certainly he won't address this guy or talk to him. And I love it. Jesus does the opposite of what everybody thinks all the time. And friends, I, I know and you know probably a lot of you that that's because his economy, God's economy is so 180 degrees off from ours. I don't know what you know about leprosy, so let me give you a quick rundown here. This guy didn't have leprosy. He was full of leprosy. That means he's in, if there's a stage four of leprosy, he's got it. And the highest stages of leprosy means stuff's falling off, okay? I hate to be so blunt, but that's just it. Your fingers are falling off. His nose is probably falling off. Definitely doesn't have lips at this stage. That's one of the first things to go. And so he's just got lines there, probably a hole in his face. So this is that bad if he's that far along. How does that happen? Because leprosy takes away nerve endings and feelings. You don't feel anything. So if there's any kind of accident, you cut yourself, and, and it would be likely to happen to lepers because they don't, if they're in a bad situation or uh, in something that normally we would back off because we feel pain, they don't feel anything. So if something sharp is cutting their finger, they don't feel it. And that, it, it, the disease would progress and it would rot off, but before that happens, sometimes accidents would happen and, and it would just take things off. So it was a hideous disease. So you've lost body parts. And this man falls on his knees, if he had knees, to Jesus' feet and says, if you would just be willing, if you would just have the attitude that nobody else has, I know I'm asking a lot. You've got the power. We know that, Lord. If you were able to see me like nobody else sees me, if you saw any kind of worth in me at all, all you have to do is imagine me clean and have the will for it. And I've seen what you do. I would be clean. That's incredible faith, isn't it? Isn't that incredible faith for that leper? He's already broken all the rules. He doesn't care. What has he got to lose? And he goes and he, and he kneels down before Jesus. All you need to do is be willing. 
and bam, nose, fingers, everything back. So once again, you have Jesus engaging full on with people that the ruling religious establishment, and where I realize we're going back like a month, for those of you that have been with us, back to our Luke series. But we just noticed that the religious establishment would view these people as unclean, and Jesus loves to hang out with people that the religious establishment has written off. They've got lists. Here's acceptable people. These people are uncontaminated. These people are clean. These people are religious. They, some of them thought of themselves literally as perfect. And these people are contaminated, immoral, unclean, and belong over here. And that wasn't just lepers. That was anybody who they thought was the dredge of society. And Jesus keeps messing that up. The common people love him because he's turning everything upside down. And he's going to hang out with not marginal people, but the absolute fringes. He's going to go zoom right in on them first. One more thing about leprosy, just so you know. It's used so much in the Gospels, it almost seems obsessive with this disease. But here's the deal. It's a picture of sin. Leprosy is a picture of sin. Think of it like this. Sin begins slowly below the surface. You don't really see it. If somebody's got an addiction, chances are if that addiction's developing, you don't see it. But it's starting to do things inside their heart. And are starting to rot their insides. And by the time it reaches the outside and you see it, it's probably not only affecting them, but it's affected everybody around them and sins the same way. It's amazing to me how many people will be deep in sin against the Lord and say, well, it makes me happy. It's not affecting anyone else. You know who I used to hear this the most from? When I do marriage counseling, I hear this from mostly fathers and husbands who say, well, I just need to be happy. I'm leaving my family. I'm having an affair. I found someone that makes me happy. My wife and I, we just grew apart. The kids will get over it. I need to be happy. This isn't really affecting them. Really. Really isn't. And I'm not going to do this, but if I were to ask for a show of hands of those of you that come from divorced families, it's going to be half of you. It might be more. It might be a little bit more than half of you. And I'll bet if I asked you, I'll bet if I took a private poll and nobody could see the answer but me, and you wrote honestly, You'd tell me it affected you. You would tell me that it did bother you, that it did hurt you. And so this is just a selfish daydream, an absolute fantasy when we think our sin doesn't spread and affect people around us. Nevertheless, so desperately did this man, plagued, riddled with leprosy, want to be changed that when he heard Jesus is coming to the area, he broke all the rules forbidding lepers from entering any area where uncontaminated people were in order to meet Jesus. Now, maybe that doesn't seem unusual. Maybe we're going, Pastor Rob, maybe you didn't pick up on this fact, but this guy's dying. Who knows how much time he's got to live? So what's he got to lose? Of course he's going to run up to Jesus and give it a shot, right? Well, let me ask you this. How many other lepers? And, and there are tens of thousands in these colonies. They're huge. You don't see a lot of lepers running up to Jesus in a public place. For some reason, they're keeping the rules until the day they die. If they're living in these caves and they're living in these colonies, they're not leaving they're not throwing caution to their wind, to the wind. They're not saying, what have I got to lose? Let me just find Jesus. I don't care. I'll go into a public place. What are they going to do, shoot me? No, bullets haven't been invented. They're not going to do that. They're not going to shoot me. They're not going to shoot arrows at me. I've got nothing to lose. I'm dying anyway. None of them come to that conclusion. You know why? This is how far off religion had gotten. They didn't come to that conclusion because they thought, if I break those rules and I go into a public place where the religious and good people are, the people that God loves, then God's going to get mad at me, and when I die, I won't even go to heaven. When I die, I won't even be cleansed. At least, at least if I'm good now, obviously I did something bad to get this disease, but at least if I'm good now, maybe when I die, 
Something will change. So they didn't dare get out of line. This guy just says, forget all of that. That's messed up. I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm going to go see Jesus. So what I'm going to have for you this morning is a series of questions that come out in these five or six stories. And and I'm going to leave them at that. I'm not going to answer them for you. But they're raised, and they're meant to be raised in these stories. And I want you to think about them. First of all, let me see if you can get this one before I even give it to you. The similarities are uncanny between, well, back then and today, between the religion back then and churches today, in that sometimes churches, they become the very thing that repels sinners and people that need hope and love and grace the most. Have you noticed that? The church becomes a place that sinners are afraid to go to because there's hypocrisy, because they'll be judged because they'll be stared at, because they might be ridiculed, people might laugh and whisper when they're there. In other words, a lot of churches have become country clubs for saints instead of the hospitals for sinners that they're meant to be. And that's the way that it was in Jesus' day. And he's saying, I haven't even come for the righteous, I've come for sinners. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And he's not saying that he won't come for people that are pretty good, He's saying people that think they're pretty good usually think they're one step from perfect, and I can't even convince them that they need any help, even though they're dying. So I've come to this group that obviously knows they need help. I want to go there first because they're, they're that close and that quick to come to me, whereas the religious and the righteous, they're slow and stubborn because they think they don't need me. So the church becomes a place that repels the very people that it's called to help, very sinners that need them. Now, knowing all this, what's the hard issue here? What's the most important point? Here it is, and I don't know if you've got anything to write on today, so if you start back into the series, I don't think we had notes, but if you've got anything to write on, like your neighbor's hand, write this down. Number one, what will it take to keep you from Jesus? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, what will it take to get you to Jesus? I'm, I'm asking it upside down, because that's what was happening here. What will it take to get you to, what will it take to keep you from Jesus? Maybe it's hypocrites. Maybe some of you are in church and you don't come that much because you go, well, I'm here. I'll check it out. Heard it was a new church. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. I agree. It probably is. That's why if you come, one more won't hurt us. It is full of hypocrites. And it's full of sinners, too. That's probably a good, healthy, functioning church. But you need God. Or maybe perhaps you feel like you'll be judged and turn away. Maybe somebody knows about your past, or you feel like they do, and that'll put you on the spot. Maybe people whisper, well, the leper gang had all this in spades. Come on. But he still came to Jesus. He overcame it all and came to Jesus. Because listen, he had gotten to that desperate place in life where nothing could keep him from Jesus. It doesn't matter. I think there's a chance that this man, this God man, has something that not only will heal me outside, but I hear he has something more. You need to come to Jesus. Only he can change you. Only he can make you whole. So I have to ask you, if you're not coming to Jesus, if you're not close with him, if your life is not abundant and vibrant, then what is it? Look at your life and go, something is more important than God right now. What's keeping you from having a breakthrough? What's keeping you from Jesus? First question, what will it take to keep you from Jesus? The next thing I want you to think about is once in his presence, like this leper, what will it take for you to come clean in order to be made clean? What will it take for you to come clean in order to be made clean? Does that make sense? 
And what if this leper would have said, Jesus, please heal me. I'm not that bad. I know it looks bad. I just got leprosy. And some of these things are an accident and all, but I don't think you'll catch. And he starts making excuses for his leprosy. Or I was really a good person, and I think this is a fluke. I think God messed up, but if you'll just go ahead and write or He didn't make any excuses. He just said, if this is, this is what I am. I'm messed up, and I'm desperate. Nevertheless, if you look at me and find some worth, if you will, if, if you're just willing, nobody else is, but if you're willing, you're different. You can make me clean. And Jesus loved that. I could just imagine Jesus smiling, not paranoid or anything. And by the way, Jesus touched him. This guy was in this, this advanced stage of leprosy. I wonder how long it had been since he'd even been touched by any human being. He touched him spiritually. He touched him physically. He said, you are worth it. By saying, I'm willing to be clean, he's saying, you are worth it to me. You are of infinite worth to me. I am willing. Jesus not only spoke a word, but he touched this one who perhaps had not been touched in years due to his disease. Sometimes we walk into churches, even if we feel pretty good about ourselves, like I said, and we feel like they look at us with disgust. Maybe they're not, but we feel like that. I wonder where that comes from. We feel like people are holding their spiritual noses at us. You know, they don't fit. They're not from around here. What's wrong with them? Or they look away appalled, or why do they dress like that? Or who comes to church like that? All these judgmental things. I want you to know that Jesus wants you to know today, others might be put off. Maybe some of that's true. Others might be put off by you. I know sometimes people are put off by me. But Jesus is not. Jesus is not put off by you. Where others shun us, Jesus embraces. Where others shun, Jesus embraces. Let's skip down to verse 17 now. On one of those days, here's another story. As he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Some of you might be going, yeah, but he's God. Of course the power is with him. Well, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus willingly in heaven laid aside his divine attributes before he became one of us. In other words, he didn't just come onto earth glowing and spectacular like God, and you know it would have killed us just to look upon him. He laid that aside to go through, to wrap around him human flesh and go through life just like us. Aches, pains, everything. And so the power of his father, the power of the Holy Spirit had to come on him for him to do these miracles. He had to be connected just like we have to, to his father. For a time anyway. And behold, some men were bringing on a, on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd around Jesus, they went up on a roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Man, don't miss this story because this is one of the most beautiful stories of forgiveness in all of Scripture because this guy, this paralyzed guy, does nothing. Literally does nothing. But Jesus sees his condition and Jesus sees his heart. I mean, Jesus just wants you to come desperate and broken and honest before him. This guy never even speaks a word. In fact, he sees whose faith? Did you hear what I said when I read it? I will take a little sip while you contemplate that. Whose faith did Jesus see? Time's up. Too long it took you. They went up on the roof and let him down 
with his bed through the tiles into the midst. And when he saw their faith, he said, when he saw their faith, he said to the man. So he sees their incredible faith and credits it to this guy. The paralyzed guy didn't show any faith. It's his friends that showed the faith. But he took them all together and he said to that man something that's completely unrelated. He didn't say, wow, they have incredible faith. They obviously want you to be well, so go ahead and walk. Instead, he addresses the bigger need. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Gang, I want you to know that in the, the book of Luke right now, that's new territory. And the scribes and the Pharisees didn't miss it. They began question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, because they weren't saying it, they were thinking it. So I love when Jesus does this. I know what you're thinking, and it's not good. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Why are you questioning in your heart? Okay, let's try this then. What do you suppose is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Probably gave him five, ten seconds to think about that, even though it's an easy question. Then he said, so that you may know that I'm God, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So the miracle here, gang, is an after effect. The miracle here is an afterthought. The miracle here was to prove that he's God and was to prove he can forgive sins and was to take care of the bigger need. The bigger need here is spiritual, not physical. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God, worshiping God. And amazement seized them all. I would say probably that would happen, right? Because he'd been paralyzed probably for years, and the whole community knows. And they glorified God. That means it spread immediately to others. And were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things. Yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. That would be great. I want to point something out here. I just learned this this week. I mean, I think I've heard this before, but it, you know, you've got the Bible, and then there's a lot of, there's Josephus, there's a lot of historical extra things that you can look at to sort of help you know what was going on in that day. And Jewish tradition and Christian tradition says something was happening here. First of all, let me give you two things. Historically, for a man to forgive or for a man to be forgiven by God for his sins, he'd have to work the system. He would have to work the law. He would have to do the sacrifices. He would have to jump through certain hoops. He would have to show himself to the priest. He'd have to go through all of this, and if the priest said yes, and, and, and all the requirements look like they're taken care of, then he could say, for God, you are forgiven. If he made repayment, if he made things right, there's all these things, then there'd be the action. But I remind you, this man has done nothing except take a little ride from the roof to the floor on a mat. He's done nothing. And what does Jesus do? He forgives his sins. There's starting to be a shift in the Gospel of Luke from this point forward, and it gets more and more powerful. And it's a shift from law to grace. It's a shift from performance to the person of Christ, from rules to relationship, and from regulations to restoration, a big shift. And I promise you, if you're missing it, another group did not miss it. The religious leaders didn't miss it. Now, as I read these stories, you're going to pick up on different things. Don't let one subtle thing 
go by you. One of the things is it says that crowds were gathering from everywhere. But as I read some of these, it's also going to say the religious leaders were coming from nearby towns and from Jerusalem. Do you know what that means? These weren't big cities. If you go to Jerusalem now, you're going to see Nazareth, I think, is about 10,000 people if you go visit. It was probably about 50 to 200 at the most. It's a little village. And they were filled with these villages. And sometimes Jesus drew crowds of 15 or 20,000 people. So you know how many little villages have to get the word out? You know how huge he has to be to draw that kind of crowd when it's just little villages dotting the landscape like that? So the word is out, and the shift is out. And the Pharisees and religious leaders are upset. They're coming from each, every Pharisee and every scribe and every religious leader from every town is there, and the leaders of the leaders from Jerusalem are making the journey now to wherever Jesus is teaching, and they're sitting out in the crowd. It would be like having four or five people here every week who are spies, whose only purpose is to come and, and see if Pastor Rob has anything wrong. They're, they're here to nail me. Jesus had that everywhere he went. There was a group that was just there hanging on his every word to nail him. Never saw the love, never saw the grace, never paid attention to the miracles. They never denied him, but they didn't care. They just hated him. So he not only has to teach in love and grace, he has to watch out for this crowd that is always there. And church, and here's the second thing. Church tradition tells us this man was paralyzed as a result of a sexually transmitted disease. I'm looking at this thing and going, so he wasn't born that way? No, it's all over that, that he had done something to get this. And if this is the case, the greatest need of this man was not to walk, but to rather know that he could be forgiven, right? So Jesus knew all of this, and he knew his heart, and he knew his brokenness. As he's laying there withered and paralyzed from this disease that he brought upon himself, Jesus looks at him and he says, you're broken inside, you're dying. Like that leopard, you're more concerned right now about where you're going to end up. You're desperate. I know your heart. Didn't he just say a couple seconds later, I know your thoughts and I know your heart about the Pharisees? Well, then he knew this man's heart too. And he said, I know, I'm gonna, he knew he was gonna make him walk for everybody's sake there. But he gave him a, a better gift at first. He said, your sins are forgiven. And I'll bet that paralyzed man was elated at that. Now, I bet his friends thought, that's great. That's kind of a ripoff. I mean, we didn't bring him here for that. We brought him here to walk. And so there might have been a moment when they felt like that's what we get, but I'll bet he was elated because he had a bigger need. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows that the deepest needs we humans have are not physical and they're not material. So why is it that we think they are probably material first, physical second, emotional third, spiritual fourth if there's a fourth at all? Therefore, even though there may have been a moment where his, this man's friends felt cheated, I'd be willing to bet the paralyzed man was elated. And that getting up and walking was the second best thing that happened to him that day. Not the first. So here's your third question. What will it take to keep you from bringing others to Jesus? I don't, wanna, I don't want you to, I don't want to blow by those four friends because they're incredible. What would it take? Apparently, it wouldn't take ridicule. Apparently, it wouldn't take mumbling and hypocrisy and, and saying, why would you be friends with this guy? They blew by all that. And apparently, it wouldn't even take a wall or a roof. They ripped that off to get him to Jesus. We're an invite culture. If we're going to be different as a church, we need to care as much about the lost out there as these guys did about their friend who was lost spiritually. Are you willing to tear off the roof to get your friends here? Pretty convicting stuff. 
or with disappointment or rejection or ridicule or something else keep you from bringing others to Jesus? Let's keep going. I love this one. And Levi, some of your Bibles say, this is Matthew. It's one of the disciples. He's just called Matthew. We're going to skip by that and possibly pick it up next week because I'm actually going through the stories that relate. And then anybody not realize that the Gospels are not in chronological order? Just checking. So I'm going to try and do a, a little bit better in Luke in keeping these things in order. So he's called Levi, who's a tax collector, to follow him. And then later on says, Levi, who was real grateful to Jesus, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors there. And some of you are reading this like, so there was a bunch of IRS people there. They can really, they, can, they know how to party. And, and you're thinking, who cares? This sounds like a boring party. And others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said, that means tax collectors must, must be in a special category, right? Because he says sinners and tax collectors. So there are sinners of every kind, as vile as it gets, and then one level below them is tax collectors. We'll get to that in a moment. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. That's what I said earlier. And those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, covered this before, but I want to cover it again real quick because it's so important and it just pops up over and over again in the Gospels. This idea of tax collector. We don't care because there's no equivalent today. An IRS agent might collect taxes. Well, there is sort of an equivalent the last year or so as they target people. But back then, this is how vile they were. The enemy would come in and Rome would come in and occupy Jerusalem, occupy Palestine and kill Hundreds of, I mean, tens of thousands of people would have been killed. Members of your family probably would have been killed in order for that occupation to be solidified. And then let's say half your family was wiped out by the Roman occupiers, but your neighbor wanted to get a job with him, so he paid a little sum of money to become a tax collector so that he could rip you off and give money to the oppressors that helped kill your family. I would say that tax collector neighbor of yours would not be your favorite person, right? That's this guy. That's why they hated them so much. They might as well be Romans themselves who occupy. They might as well be them, the enemy themselves, only a step worse because they're doing this to their own brothers. So it's vile. It's, it's horrible. So I completely get their grumbling. But what's Jesus doing here? Oh, please don't miss this. Jesus is going to the darkest of the dark and he's saying, come on, because if God can forgive the tax collector, everyone else is a step under that. Do you get that? I want you to know how low, it doesn't matter what you've done. I came to rescue sinners. But I'm a really bad one. Well, how bad are you? I'm going to call some pretty bad people just so I can take that excuse away. Why is he calling Levi? So that every prostitute, any person with secret shame, any person with hidden darkness can go... If he could love this tax collector, maybe there's hope for me. So this is pretty profound. Setting the captives free and removing the blinders. This deal with Levi is a huge turning point as well. And keep in mind that I said he's going to keep engaging the religious consistently in their hypocrisy and how they're doing church or gathering at the temple. 
So hopefully you're starting to see this pick up in the book. The religious are starting to get worried about Jesus. By the way, that's why I'm so floored, and you should be too, at how popular the idiotic teaching of high self-esteem in churches is. How flawed it is. Because from Genesis to Revelation, it's not in there. And it's so popular. It would be like Paul in his writings, instead of saying how he was the chief of sinners and, and, and being so glorifying to God for rescuing him, it would be like Paul saying, I'm great and I'm good and by golly, Jesus loves me. That's kind of what the self-esteem thing is. And you don't see that in Paul. You're not going to find it anywhere. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. I persecuted the church. I imprisoned Christians. I was on the giving end of a lot of beatdowns. I held people's coats in order to free up their throwing arms so they could launch rocks at people's skull and kill them. And then what? God saved him. Why? If you ever wonder, Timothy says that he saved him so that the patience of God might be known to those in the future who would be called. What does that mean? Translation, he saved Paul and Levi and others like him so that we would be without excuse for not coming to Jesus. It would take away any excuse. You might go, I'm just too bad a person. I'm too unlovable. I'm really messed up. Really? Are you running a fight club for Christians? Because he was. Are you a bounty hunter hauling in poor soft-spoken widows to get them beat down for their last dime? Is every other word that comes out of your mouth a blasphemy of God? Do you hold gang members' iPhones and, and watch their Cadillac Escalades while they beat a 13-year-old to death because he refuses to join a gang? Is that what you do? You do all those things and worse combined? If so, then you're still not too bad for God to love and save. That's why he chose Paul. That's why he chose Levi. Not because they're qualified. Are, are we getting this? They're unbelievably unqualified. <laughs> unbelievably unqualified. Fourth question, what will it take for you to believe Jesus loves you and died for you? What will it take? All right, we're going to move ahead a little bit, and this is our last thing for today. Chapter 6, and I'm going to go back and get some of this, but chapter 6, tw verse 12. It's more of this flawed people thing. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray. So we've been in this study for a little while, a couple of months, and now we're picking it up again. And hopefully you're also seeing another pattern. Jesus tells us how we can get close to his Father. And he's not a hypocrite. In other words, he's not saying, do all this, and, and then, no, actually, you've got to be this. No, wait, no, you've got to do this. No, you got to No, he's just saying, just, just be with me. Spend time. And then he doesn't just say it. He does it. He himself prays. You're going to find him over and over again seeking desolate places, seeking places to be quiet, seeking places to be with his father and be alone. Verse 13, and when day came, day came, that's right, he prayed all night, all night long, prayed to his father. Not asking us to do this, doing it himself telling us there's great benefit in this that I want you to have. But that doesn't come in a two-minute prayer. It comes in long conversations with God. 
And one day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he had named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's the list. <clears throat> I struggle with this list. Anybody here play fantasy football ever? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I love fantasy football. I haven't played in a couple of years because I've, I'm missing a little something called time. So I'm not able to play this. But I love it, especially the draft. And I remember the group of friends that I would play with, we'd get together and <clears throat> the draft was a big deal. We would project up on a big screen you know, the whole deal. And we got this software that sounded like a real announcer's voice was in a stadium. So when you select a player, it would be Peyton Manning, 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 Manning. Quarterback out of Denver, selected number one in the overall. I mean, so it would just be a real, and it went on for like three hours. It was a great, great lot of fun. And, and if you've played fantasy football, then you know that the draft's the most important part, right? It's who you pick there that'll determine pretty much how well you're going to do in the rest of the season. And Sure, you can make trades later on, but if you've picked a lousy team, you're not going to win. So I made the Super Bowl a time or two. I played like five or six years of this and almost always made the playoffs, and only one year did I end up in dead last, and that was pretty humiliating, and that is why I'd like to have Jesus in my fantasy football league because then I know I would never come in last because I've seen how he picks teams, and I'm serious. Look at this team. If this was a draft... He did poorly. If we read this like it was a sport and we're reading like the NFL, the last line would be like, and Simon Peter out of Galilee, who ran a 10-5-40 in the combines because his foot was always in his mouth, was taken number one by Jesus of Nazareth, first overall pick. Did he hit the wrong button? Did he mess up? Why would he pick this guy? Then, you, you know, you go through the other players and you go through the round and Jesus has a second pick and maybe he'll get a little more clarity and Judas Iscariot, shifty hands, darty eyes, not to mention a nervous twitch and a criminal record, chosen the second wide receiver taken out of Jerusalem, Judas Iscariot, second pick for the disciples, disciples, disciples. It's not a good draft. It is a terrible draft for Jesus in the pursuit of changing the world, isn't it? Do we need to look for further? This entire list, there's at least one story about one of these disciples, all of them, some of them have many stories, like Peter. It's not a winning team by anybody's evaluation. I mean, if you want to convince the team, you got to have a positive attitude. We can win. You've got Thomas, right? No, we can't. I'm just looking at us. I doubt we can win. Look, we're a bunch of lame players. I mean, you're going to have that, so you can't get pumped up. As we continue our journey through the book, you're going to see things even about James. Look real closely. Jesus tells James to do things, and James has no short-term memory, so he's always bringing people back to Jesus. What did Jesus say? I don't know. Come and see, because he forgets. Peter's getting more personal fouls than the entire 76 Oakland Raiders, right? He's always messing up, and whenever they catch him in the act, he just what? Denies it. What? I didn't make a foul. I didn't do it. I don't even play for this team. In fact, I've never heard of the disciples. I don't even know this man. And so that's somebody else that you have. All these guys have massive issues. John is more codependent than Terrell Owens. 
He loves everybody, and then when he gets on a team, he ends up hating them. So they trade him to another team, and he just loves them for a while, and then he hates them. He's schizophrenic. Do we even have to go into details about Judas? He just portrays Jesus for nothing. It's a bad draft, isn't it? It's a bad draft. But somehow, gang, it makes me feel really warm when I look at this group because it gives me hope that not only is it possible for Jesus to maybe occasionally pick a mess up like me, but it gives me hope that Jesus is going to go after the mess ups and the ordinary people first to do extraordinary things. So if you've messed up and you've got a dark past, it's okay to not be okay at Impact Church. You're at the right place. You're looking for the right God, Jesus, the only God. The only one who says, not only is it okay to not be okay, but it's the beginning of hope. Because I can't help you while you're facing the other way, running in the other directions, thinking you've got it together. But when you stop and trip and fall on your face and look up at me, my hand's out, I'm ready. And the more unimpressed you are with yourself, the more ready you are to do great things in the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the last question, what will it take for you to believe God can use an ordinary person like you to do great things? Let's pray. Father, I love this book. Love, love, love this book. God, I pray that we didn't miss it today. Maybe somebody walked in here today impressed with themselves. I doubt it. Maybe they came in here feeling pretty perfect and going, well, this isn't the place for me because I, I'm, I'm too good for these people. I, I kind of doubt that, Father. I'll bet everybody in here feels they've got something wrong and somebody probably feels in here they've got nothing right. God, help that person especially to know that they're right on the verge of doing great things for you. This series is all about the abundant life that we can find in you, Father, if we will just stop being so impressed with ourselves and follow you. It is about being. It's not about doing. Help us to know that's what you came to bring, Lord. And transform us, Lord, that we may be used to transform others for a movement of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you next week.